Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome, everyone, to Modern Day Debate. We are a neutral platform. Welcome, everybody, from all walks of life. So if you're looking for more juicy debates, hmm, don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you like what you hear tonight from either of our interlocutors, their links are put in the description below. And with that, we're going to hand it over to our first interlocutor, J.F., for their first 10-minute opening statement. J.F., the floor is all yours. Thank you very much, Amy. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So this discussion started with a Twitter interaction with Perspective Philosophy after our last debate, with, which really had nothing to do, the although the, the titles are... may seem similar. We debated on genes versus meme, what is... Uh, what is the most important thing to leave as a legacy. And uh, in a series of tweets, uh, Perspective Philosophy discovered a position that I have, I've, I've had since a long time, which is that the nature versus nurture debate, very promoted within academia, uh, on which every psychological psychology student is trained in one way or another, and every master's, every PhD uh, in, in uh, psychology will end up caring about this debate one day or another, that this highly promoted debate is ultimately a, uh, an idea that is false, one. And it's not only false, because most things in psychology are false. Psychologists are incompetent, and the academia is basically as good as a coin flip to find the truth. But it's a falsehood that is extremely uh, damaging to society, particularly because this falsehood, this idea of a false dichotomy between nature and nurture is hiding us from a very important truth, which is that parents of European origins have a particular way of parenting. I believe that much of their parental contributions are ultimately caused by genes. I believe that there are good genes of parenting running into the European population. And unfortunately, the nature versus nurture debate, whether you're on one side or another, ignores the contribution of parental genes. And I would go up to say that there is a coordinated effort to deny the importance of European parents in the success of European children, particularly in American society. And so today I need to make three cases to to defend my view. The first case I want to make is nature versus nurture is false. It's a false dichotomy. There is no division between the two. Nurture is nature. Caring for your children is part of nature. It's part of what your genes needed to do for your children to be successful. And so the, the false dichotomy is there. Number two, European parents offer a beneficial form of parenting that improves their children in multiple areas of life. That is simply the fact that white parents in America are more successful than people of other 
uh, origins. And then the third case I want to make is that academics on both sides of the nature versus nurture debate are finding ways to argue themselves out of the truth of European parental goodness. And as a result, they form a functional conspiracy in which academics, in agreeing together to engage on an obviously fallacious false dichotomy, have the effect of negating the importance of parental quality in the contribution of our children's success. The ultimate end goal of this is delegating parental contributions to the state, abandoning children to the public schools, and even in some of the extreme cases of leftist academics I will quote, we are talking about kidnapping children from white families to make them to have them adopted in black families, something that is pushed at Harvard University called transracial adoption. What we're looking at here is a project that hurts the European family, which has been under attack for the last 40 years. But let's go back to the beginning and let me take you through this. Is nature versus nurture a false dichotomy? Well, on that, you need to apply some logic here. Um, is nurture any different than nature? Is there anything in the life of a parent, in the, the love that you feel for your children, in the services that you deliver to your children? Is there anything that is not generated by your brain that is not, that, that would have been there if your body wasn't there? Certainly not. The entirety of everything we do with our children, just like the entirety of everything a bird does for its eggs or for its baby birds, is done through the body, and the body is constructed by genes. Uh, the tendencies that you would have to gather food to give to your children, they are encoded in your brain. Ultimately, for you to make these movements, you need that brain, and for that brain to exist, you needed your genes. And so normally, when, when we have this presentation, nature versus nurture, this false dichotomy that exists in academia, it is with the idea that there is something separate between human culture and nature. My point to you today is that there is not, that any instance of human culture transmitting itself will transmit between biological brains that have evolved to transmit culture. Uh, in the same way, if an ethologist was to go into a bird population, um, and look at their parental behavior, you wouldn't start qualifying what the bird has learned in terms of nest building as not nature. Every behavior of the bird that could contribute to the success of the, the, the baby birds would be included as part of nature. Why do we act differently when it comes down to humans? Uh, we act differently because we're pushing in academia, they are pushing for this fallacy to endure. Um, it goes further than this. There are people within the nature versus nurture debate who continue further than the false dichotomy, which is logically obvious. And they, even on the side of genes, even on the side of nature, the, the experiments that they propose, that they rely on to gather their information are biased against detecting parental contributions. One of the most popular format of a study to determine the nature versus nurture dichotomy is twin studies. Twin studies where twins have been separated at birth, 
one of the twins may have the exact same genes as the other, or he may only share 50%. So that's a dizygotic versus a monozygotic twin pair. They get separated at birth. They get adopted in new environments. And then we can tease apart what were the genes, what was the effect of, of the environment. But here's precisely where this experiment fails. And it fails at detecting the relationship that exists with a biological parent, his genes, and his parental capacity. The problem is that this study format can detect a lot of things other than this. This is the one thing that it's totally blind to. Because by using adoptive families, you have replaced the biological parents. And suddenly all of the interactions that could have happened between the genes of the parents and the genes of the child have just been abolished. So we're looking at children as individuals and we fail to capture the true complexity of nature, which is that the true complexity of nature are that there are genes that may be very good at connecting biological parents to their bi biological children. Let me give you a, a few examples of genes that we could miss through this experimental setup. You could miss a gene that makes a parent a good teacher and a children a good student. You could miss genes that make a parent particularly motivated at caring for their kin, but not so motivated at caring for random children out there. You could miss all these genes that in some way link optimal behavior by the parent to optimal learning behavior by the child. In other words, twin studies are designed in a way that is meant to negate parental contribution. There are also other weaknesses of these studies. Uh, they ignore the awareness of the circumstances that must lead to two twins being separated at birth. Of course, if you're doing only your studies to on twins that will get adopted, clearly there must have been a problem in the original family. So you're, you're really studying a subset of genes and a subset of children. Uh, it also ignores the normal ecological environment in which families develop, which in the vast majority of cases is biological parents raising biological children. So for all these reasons, the best studies in this domain that where people care about the nature-nurture dichotomy are biased, and they hide you from one truth, the importance of the parental contribution, precisely because the adoption a trick that is being used in these studies blurs the image of parental contribution. Whereas we have other studies to look at parental contributions and what they reveal is that, of course, pa how parents behave with their children matters. I mean, to anyone who's been going around social media, we keep seeing these fights happening in airports right now in the U.S. And minute. we see children. What? Uh, one more minute left. Okay, one more minute. We see children seeing their own mothers go insane, attack the cashiers, attack the, attack the aunt, attack the uncle. Uh, clearly children who are exposed to this variety of emotional uh, behavior will be traumatized by it. But unfortunately, the typical study sets that we use for the nature nurture debate do not capture this complexity. So this closes it for my point on is nature versus nurture a false dichotomy? 
Yes, it is. In the normal circumstances, the genes of the parents matter, the genes of the children matter, and they communicate with each other through various teaching and brain features that are developed for the purpose of the parental-child relationship. Now, I will move on later in the debate on are European parents different and are they better at what they do? And then we're going to look into the leftist academics who seek to exploit these false dichotomies, these weak features of the experimental setups to make their leftist arguments. But for now, it will be the turn of perspective philosophy. Thank you very much. Thank you so very much, JF, for your 10-minute opening statement. And now we're going to hand it off to Perspective Philosophy for his 10 minutes. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate it uh, for, for having us on here to once again debate JF. And yes, um, this did start on Twitter, as all good debates do. We see it began because um, of that airport, uh, actually, yeah, <laughs> um, video that you posted. Which is, I found quite funny, and we'll get onto that in a moment. But the nature versus nurture debate really is not supposed to be, let's say, a dichotomous relationship anyway. The whole point is to work out how much of an impact environment, culture, and other external factors can have upon the development and behavior of a child in comparative to their nature, quote unquote, their genes. It's not necessarily to undermine the importance of genes, but also not to overstate the importance of genes. Charles Darwin himself once wrote, the greatest error to which I've committed has been not allowing sufficient weight to the direct action of the environment, i.e. food, climate, independently of natural selection. If that critique can be leveled at Darwin, it can be double, doubly leveled at my interloca, GF. Jeff repeatedly overstates the importance of genetics in terms of outcome and societal outcome. He really reduces all human behavior, human action to genetic expression. Well, that might not necessarily be the case. Now, this debate is not only upon genes and whether the environment or genes is more important or whether the nature and versus nurture debate is well suited for the discussion that we need to have, but rather that there is a conspiratorial aspect to this debate, that this debate has been set up by left-wing academics or academics as a whole, since GF basically threw out psychology, philosophy, history, and anthropology as left-wing and biased for conducting the nature versus nurture debate. And they are biased simply for conducting the debate. The debate itself is a distraction apparently from the fundamental importance of European genes. And so in order to break this discussion down, I think that we need to really recognize some of the points of contention. So I think that the first point of contention is what do we mean by success? What is the success of Europe that we are attributing to genetic material? Is it the material growth of Europe? Is it uh, an ideological uh, uh, factor in Europe? Let's say, for example, happiness reports. What is it? Um, the next aspect I think is the, you know, how important is the environment in relation to genetic expression? You know, does the environment or does genetic material play a greater overall role in the development of European success and how much role did it, how much of a role does it play in the success of any human alive? And then the third point is, do we have any evidence to show that this debate has been constructed in order to undermine 
the truth or, for example, the, the political uh, opposition in order to fulfill some sort of agenda or mandate. So have the left conspired this debate to gain some sort of foothold in our society? So my opponent also said that nature versus nurture uh, is essentially a false dichotomy. Well, I don't believe that to be the case. I think nature versus nurture is a pretty good dichotomy to have because it allows us to differentiate various causes which might explain why an individual may behave one way and another way depending upon their upbringing, the resources that were around during their development, and even um, the expression of psychological disorders, okay? So even if we agree on a physicalist narrative, which I do not, I am not a physicalist, but even if we were to agree on a physicalist narrative, there are a multitude of physical causes which are not simply genetic and can be attributed to other aspects of nature, quote unquote. For example, the abundance of resources in a region would have a great deal of importance upon the development of a nation in terms of its, quote unquote, success. So, for example, if you are looking at the Japanese development of swords versus the European development of swords, you would see that the Europeans developed better swords faster. And that had a lot to do, not with the capacity and the genetics available for individuals to produce swords. The Japanese have very complex and creative ways of dealing with their um, poor iron deposits, but their iron deposits were poorer. And so they weren't able to create spring steel and the Europeans were, which led to a great many of other inventions, um, you know, just off the back of one uh, resource distribution difference. This is not even considering, for example, cultural differences, which have contributed to differences in the production of ceramics versus glass and so on. Um, okay. My proponent, my, uh, my opponent also wants to argue that culture, the norms and conventions of our society is attributable purely to genetic expression that our brains are produced by nature and so the production of our culture is from those brains and our behaviors can only be explained in relation to the causal uh, inferences created from brain states, which is, to be entirely honest with you, neurologically outdated. Brain plasticity has showed that the brain itself is dependent upon the environment in which it's situated. Not only that, but our genetic expression is dependent upon the environment in which it's, in which it's situated. And this is the study of, for example, epigenetics. Epigenetics has showed that, let's say, the birth weight of a child is dependent upon the food consumption of the mother, but also the environment of the womb. If you were to transplant, the, uh, for example, an embryo to a surrogate mother, it is likely to have a greater impact than the genetic material given from the, from the uh, biological mother and the surrogate mother. Their womb will have a greater impact upon the birth weight than the genetic material provided. This is even... Uh, this is even demonstrated in weight loss surgeries on the same mother. You can have the same mother give genetic material and it will still have a greater impact if they've had, in the likelihood of, of childhood obesity, if they've had weight loss surgery. The likelihood of childhood obesity then is regulated, not necessarily by the genetic material, but by the environment in which the individual is actually raised and develops into and develops around. Whether my opponent recognizes this or not, culture does causally impact our biology. The education systems that we have, 
the religion that we have, all cultural aspects have a great overall um, contribution to our brain states, but also our mental development. A good example would be something like um, obsessive compulsive disorder. The religion of someone with obsessive compulsive disorder determines vastly different conclusions to how it will actually, sorry, vastly different outcomes to someone of a different religion. A good example is, for example, if someone is a fundamentalist, let's say Islam or Judaism, if they have OCD versus a Christian with OCD, a Christian is most likely to express OCD in terms of blasphemy. Um, you know, for example, um, insults to God, fearing of insulting God. Um, you know, this could be seeing, this could be the, let's say, fear of demons and demonic symbols. It could be fear of um, stepping on crosses. Um, and I think it was Martin Luther who used to have intrusive imagery of the devil's backside. Now, um, Islam and Jews and, and Judaism typically understand, typically have uh, obsessive compulsive compulsions centered around performing ritual correctly. Now, these um, expressions of their uh, obsessive compulsive disorder are purely cultural in origin. Uh, if I was to take someone with OCD and raise them in an environment which was, um, you know, uh, Islamic and not Christian, they will have different expressions of that OCD to varying levels. And so what we have to ask ourselves in this is, does genetic reductionism give greater explanatory power than psychology, history, philosophy, and all other forms of social sciences, although I will agree, I don't think they are sciences, but social philosophies and humanities as a whole. I don't believe that my, proponent, my opponent can demonstrate that genetic reduction gives greater explanatory power simply because he argues that everything is reducible to the brain. Because even if it is reducible to the brain, our society and the analysis of our society will give a greater explanation of how our brains develop. My opponent also talked about trauma and particularly involved in the uh, horrific airport incident from which I was uh, allowed to witness as well from sharing it on Twitter. And yet it seems that this was an entirely environmental, um, you know, entirely environmental um, circumstance. Not only does the child... Um, is the child going to be traumatized, quote unquote, manipulating their brain states because of the experience they've had in life and not necessarily their genetic material, but also the, um, but also the, 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 the way in which our institutions have functioned directly changed the outcome of how the mother behaved. The One mother minute. behaved in such a way. No, thank you. The mother behaved in such a way and could behave in such a way, and it would be seen in, as traumatizing by the child because of the norms and conventions of our culture. We have recognized, even in relation to you know uh, PTSD or Pitts disorder, you know perpetration-induced traumatic stress, that certain environmental factors can play a protective role in the development of this disorder. And so, even if we are established that this was a traumatic event, it is only traumatic in relation to the ideology that is being. Uh, perpetuated in the norms and conventions of our society and also internalized by that child. And so, I'm sorry, Jeff, uh, nature versus nurture is an important debate and it's certainly not a leftist conspiracy and I would like you to demonstrate the conspiratorial aspect as well. 
All Thank right. you so uh, very much, Perspective Philosophy, for your opening 10-minute statement. And with that, we're going to go into the 40-minute or plus some change open discussion. The floor is all yours, guys. All right. A couple of responses to what was done in the intro by Perspective Philosophy, and then we can move on to are European parents really different? Uh, he says at the beginning, he says uh, that nature versus nurture is not meant to be a dichotomy. It's meant to look at external factors, but it has to be a dichotomy if you want to use the word versus. Uh, and in fact, later he says nature versus nurture is a useful dichotomy to have. Well, that's a contradiction with your earlier statements. So do you believe there's a dichotomy or not between the two? Do you believe that any of the examples that you gave are purely nurture independent of genes? Sorry, I, I, well, when I say dichotomy, I mean like absolutely opposed. I mean, the whole point of this is to separate, let's say, to like, because we could have this debate under a physicalist framework, right? You can have nature versus nurture arguing from purely material causation, right? So you could have nature being um, the genetic material of the individual and then nurture being the cultural environment, which you could still say was determined by physical causation, you know, everything originating from the Big Bang but you know not solely dependent upon genes and gene expression so when i say it's not dichotomous um i mean one it it necessarily doesn't mean that one has to override the other that there is no room for both nature and nurture but rather whether nature or nurture you know in external or internal causes are better have better explanatory power uh, to certain aspects of behavioral outcome well, uh, the problem is if you're going to call it versus one versus the other, you need to have cases where nurture is truly something separate from nature. You need a dichotomy or else you're making a false dichotomy. The problem is all the examples you've given. You talked about Christians being more likely to express OCD in a certain fashion due to cultural influence. You said the girl in the airport maybe was traumatized, but she was only traumatized in relation to cultural norms. The problem is that all the cultural norms you're talking about, the Christianity, the neurological effect, even the epigenetics and the brain plasticity, all of it is handled by genes. Ultimately, the traumatized girl in the airport, the little child, was seeing her mother go batshit insane. And that is because her mother has certain genes. If she had squirrel genes, her mother wouldn't have attacked the cashier. She would have gathered some nuts. Well, I mean, like you can say that the individual's propensity might be to make, you know, have genetic uh, factors, but we know that things like, for example, stress have a great impact to um, psychological disorders. For example, um, like schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is sometimes considered a stress-induced disorder. So an individual's environment plays a massive role in whether the gene is, you know, even if you are likely to have a genetic propensity to that disorder, whether it will actually um, become active within the individual, whether the individual will develop schizophrenia. We even see this in physical causation. You've got um, something like uh, Alzheimer's being regulated by, by the AP0A uh, gene or the AP09 gene. Um, which is most prevalent in Nigeria. You are nine to 13 times more likely to develop Alzheimer's um, if you live, if you have that gene. Yet cultures which have the gene, which have a different diet, for example, than contemporary Western cultures have lower rates of Alzheimer's and dementia. So to purely, the, the point of the discussion is not to say that, like, that uh, when we talk about nature, it is, um, you know, nature is, 
only understandable through genetic causes. That would be fallacious. Like, for example, trying to say that the sun or the or the amount of resource distribution or or any other physical cause can be explained through genes when the genes themselves can be explained by those causes. Can you can you at least recognize that when we are separating nature versus nurture, what we are really doing is separating internal and external uh, factors upon an individual's uh, development? Well, if that was it, then we should say there's a debate between internal and external factor, but that's not what the, the academia decided to do. They decided to build a false dichotomy of nature versus nurture. And by the way, you seem to think that resource availability is merely a, an issue of, uh, of environment. It is not. Ultimately, the reason why Europeans converge toward places where there are rivers and places where there are access to the sea is a genetic one. There are people who have propensity to get toward the desert, and there are people who have propensities to go toward other environments. And there are people who have genetic propensities to be able to mine stuff that others would just have walked over and not realize they were sitting on a gold mine. Hmm. And, and what propensity is that? Like, wh where does the mining gene come from? Well, the mining gene seems to have come in the history and the development of the populations between the Middle East to uh, Europe. Uh, it seems that it, it is the places where, where the Bronze Age has emerged and where tools were developed and where needs for uh, metals have developed enough to motivate a social effort to be mining. So why do you think that it's genetic and not necessarily, let's say, explainable through environment or even fortune? Like, so like, you can recognize that there are physical aspects of like of reality which go beyond genetic expression right so like even if you were to have two individuals with the same genetic expression in two um similar environments but the environment was let's say changed by you know something even minor which allowed the individual to have a greater um experience of some sort of phenomena take for example an individual stumbles into a uh into a mine or, or an individual witnesses an event which leads them to like, an apple falls on your head, for example, you know, and you start, you know, contemplating why the apple fell on your head. Do you not recognize that there are external factors, which even if we were to, you know, equalize genes would play a vital role in the development of a society and a culture? I would like to recognize this if you had a demonstration that any of the things you just listed can be done independent of genes. And my suspicion is that none can be done independent of genes. You talk of mining, for example. Well, to, to have the idea of mining and to do it seriously and productively, you need some degree of IQ. You're not going to become a miner uh, 10,000 years ago with 60 IQ. You're going to have to have some degree of intelligence to, to figure it out. You're going to have to know how to melt the metals and extract it. And so, yes, I think that genes are involved in anything that matters to humans in the entire uh, reality that is around them. Even the apples ultimately are just our relationship with another life form, which is trees producing apples. The trees have genes. And when you get hit by the apple, it's ultimately a consequence of there being genes around you. My, my point to you is the environment is made up of genes. So everything you name in the environment will end up being made up of genes. The exception being volcanoes, maybe, meteorites, maybe. That's it. Once I am reading the chat, by the way. Um, and uh, just, just, okay, we made So apples are genes. Uh, so like the, the, so if I was to say that the, 
when we talk about nature versus nurture in a debate, like, let's be honest, the academic debate is really do the genetics, do the genetic material of the individual that we are talking about have greater likelihood of, uh, produ- of determining outcome than something like the environment, which would be the genetic, which would be the genetics of the apple. They're not really calculating um, whether the genetics of apples have, um, uh, let, like, in terms of the nature versus nature, we don't take the genetics of apples to be the um, decisive uh, factor of um, or the genetic expression from which we are analyzing. We're not like, okay, well, if we really break it down, we're not looking at the genetics of you, but we're looking at the genetics of all of nature and your position within it. That, that, that's just essentially to break down the nature versus nurture debate into something absolutely separate, which is to essentially say, okay, everything can be explained in a biological framework. And it's like, okay, yes, it can. Yes, we can break down the, um, you know, all of this into a, if we were to accept physicalism into, um, you know, a biological framework, but then why should we accept a biological framework? Why should we not accept a chemical framework? Why should we not accept a physical framework, like physicist framework? Why should we not accept, for example, um, any other epistemological field in order to explain behavior if we accept that? I mean, don't get me wrong. I completely disagree with this. I don't think that, you know, behaviors can be absolutely pinned down to physical causes. But if I was to accept it, I don't have to look towards biology as an expl- to gain explanatory power. I could look towards physics. So why should I accept purely a biological take and not a physicist, a physical take? Very interesting. Now, I think this will close this part of the conversation and I'll move on to my second point. But I'm happy that you noted, yes, we can. Yes, we can see that ultimately in the environment, in what we call nurture in in our academic uh, talk, uh, ultimately we find genes and we should understand the relationship between the genes of the parent and the genes of the child as an ecological relationship. Now, on your question, why is it more useful? Well, because physics furnishes too distant of an insight on the uh, on the matters developing over evolutionary times. You could ultimately boil it down to atoms bumping on one another. Ultimately, life is nothing else than physics. It is the deployment of a special subset of physics into uh, physical existence. Uh, the reason we should focus on biology and, and ecological understanding of the position of children in our society is that biology furnishes the tool to understand where society is headed. Because of the theory of natural selection, we can know where things are headed. We can know uh, if squirrels need nuts to survive, we can know that they will evolve bodies that can find nuts. And if humans need parental attachment to survive, they will evolve in a way as to deliver and receive parental attachment. So that would be it for my answer to you. Now we can move to the uh, second question that I wanted to touch upon. Are European parents different? Sorry, what? I would like to quickly respond to that. Okay, go for it. Yeah, I mean, like you say, physics is too distant. And then chemistry, I'm assuming, is too distant. And so biology is far closer. Yet I would say that biology is not too close at all. I mean, the lack of explanatory power of human behavior derivative from biology is profound. I can't actually... Uh, point towards not only outcomes, but overall any particular behavior behavior based on purely gene expression. I, I mean, even in autistics, even in a select group of individuals, we typically say that if you've met one autistic, then you've met 
one autistic because there's over 35,000 genes associated with autism alone. And that is only one subsect of our society, which is neurodivergent. This isn't even the broader overall picture. And we can't even describe the outcomes from that, from those uh, for those individuals based on genetic expression. If you said there are 35,000 genes associated with autism, mm-hmm. there are 10,000 genes in the human genome. It's Where did um, you find the 25,000 um, others? It's, it's, um, it's, um, uh, it's not 35,000 genes. It's like relationships between genes. Okay. Uh, well, diversity in the autism population is not denied by biology. Biology totally allows the development of diversity. Well, like if you if you will, I'm I'm just quickly finish what I was saying. So, bi- biology gives us certain amount of explanatory power. I could say that you know, like understanding that someone would be autistic can give me a great amount of explanatory power on how that individual may engage within our society. But it will not tell me um, certain outcomes unless I look into um, greater overall um, cultural developments, how our culture approaches autism, how um, uh, autistics uh, fare in terms of uh, immigration, and so on. And this is where psychology, philosophy, anthropology, and history all play a role. When we understand and analyze our culture and the impact it can have on an individual um, who has a certain genetic expression, we gain greater overall uh, explanatory power. And so I'm not even saying, you know, let's get rid of biology as having any explanatory power. I'm saying that it is absolutely absurd to replace every single other field which has its own methodology and its own means of uh, extracting truth from observation and, you know, from reasoning. Uh, it, with a biological take. It's like, okay, even if it was reducible to biology, that doesn't mean we ought to reduce it to biology. Well, you seem to be insisting a lot on the reduction, reducing to biology. I don't reduce anything. Uh, I'm interested in the complexity of the psychology of humans, but uh, we have to be honest about what it is. It is not something else than biology. It is biology. Biology applies to the ensemble of all phenotypes produced by any replicator. Anything that DNA produces is part of biology, including the human brain, in my view. Now, let's talk about my second uh, threshold of demonstration. Are Europeans' parents different? I think that the, the uh, the best insight on this comes from transracial adoption studies. Uh, John Lowland in Group Differences in Intelligence uh, shows that interracial couples based on whether the mother was white or the father uh, and the father black or whether the father was white and the mother was black. He looks at the development of children and he concludes that children who are interracial but who come from white mothers will develop to have higher IQ than children who are from interracial couples, but they are developing in black mothers. So this touches upon a point you made earlier, which is that the prenatal environment of the uterus of the mother may matter a lot in terms of delivery of nutrients, in terms of ultimately reaching IQ, uh, reaching higher intelligence in adulthood. Uh, So there is a lot of evidence that it, it matters whether you are a black parent or a white parent to the outcome of your children. In fact, the transracial adoption studies have shown that there is higher IQ score in black children that are adopted in 
white middle class environment or upper class environment. So there is something that white parents furnish to their children. And it, it's so beneficial that it can even be beneficial to someone coming from another race. They can develop higher IQ. Their IQ will not attain the average of white uh, children coming from these families, but they will be slightly higher than they would have been in their black biological families. Uh, the researchers in this study called the IQ test performance of black children adopted by white family, that is from Sandra Scar and Richard Weinberg, they write, the high IQ score of the social classified black, socially classified black adoptees indicate malleability for IQ under rearing conditions that are relevant to the test and the schools. I take the two facts that I mentioned as evidence, solid evidence that white parents furnish something to their children that is beneficial to them, that helps them reach higher IQ and higher educational performance. And as a consequence, higher a lot of things, including better wealth, better adult IQ, less criminality, etc. Another evidence that European parents uh, significantly differ from others is in the amount of uh, work that they are willing to put in the education of their children. So the National Household Education Survey Program shows that homeschooling in the U.S. is a white phenomenon. 3.8% uh, of white children are homeschooled in the U.S., and this likely grew significantly since COVID. I'm only talking here about data from 2016, so before COVID. Versus 1.9% of black parents homeschooling. So the dedication to homeschooling by white parents show that they are, when they can, they are willing to invest more in the complete education of their children and therefore in their future success. Uh, of course, homeschooling is associated with higher quality uh, education of the children and better results when they become adults. I cite Richard Medlin here in Homeschooling and the Question of Socialization Revisited. He says, compared to children attending conventional schools, research suggests that they have higher quality friendships, better relationships with their parents and other adults. They are happy, optimistic, and satisfied with their lives. Their moral reasoning is at least as advanced as that of other children, and they may be more likely to act unselfishly. As adolescents, they have a strong sense of social responsibility and exhibit less emotional turmoil and problem behaviors than their peers. And in the academic and social benefits of homeschooling, Carlos Valiente and Brian D. Ray uh, in 2020, uh, they review 16 peer-reviewed studies, which shows that homeschoolers systematically outclass uh, people who are raised in public schools in the U.S. in terms of their GPA, political tolerance, and college retention compared to conventional school. So there's no doubt that white parents, uh, when they can, they end up investing more time in the development of their children and that they are making their children better with this in a way that is so clear that it can actually be done to a black children in the cases where they get adopted. So would you agree with this case that European parents have a different approach to parenting? I think what you, if, if I'm, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you listened necessarily to yourself and how you've explained this, but if anything, I think you've demonstrated the importance of environment and not genetic predisposition. 
uh, not only that, I mean, I do disagree with the racial characterization, which I'll definitely get into in a second, but you've just essentially stated that an individual's schooling, an individual's environment, despite their genetic predisposition, is more, more um, of a factor of their IQ and their brain development than their genes. Um, I, I, I don't know what to say to you, man. I, I, like, anyway... Um, but let's have a look. Um, whether it's white mothers versus black mothers that is actually causing the issue. So obviously, in terms of um, this racial disparity, I'm sure obviously all of these studies would have controlled for um, necessarily what would it be? Um, income, um, cultural background, um, you know, um, uh, exp uh, you know, um, was it, um, was it uh, uh, the possibility of um, having uh, the, the time to homeschool and so on. So whether they, they, these options are even available, and not even to mention other other factors like likelihood to like you know the, the likelihood of breastfeed or something like that. If um, you know uh, the you know uh, in terms of um, you know like black mothers who are raising their own children and so on, that there's so much uh, involved in this that it's to be entirely honest with you, um, too complex, almost too complex to 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 really test, but it would definitely need a very detailed and very controlled experiment to test this. And I, I very much doubt that like controlling for diet, income, um, you know, geography, and so on. What we've found in terms of it being uh, racial gene expression, I think that's ludicrous. I think even pointing it towards something like race is far too simplistic. Like even if we were to accept a physicalist position, look at the um, education outcomes between two separate black populations within the UK. So if we were to take African American, uh, African kids rather, African British kids and uh, Caribbean British kids. If we take Caribbean British kids, they have uh, lower um, outcomes in terms of education, um, lower than uh, the average white kid. But Afri African British kids have higher education outcomes than the uh, average British child. And this is more to do with the environment from which they're raised, for example, like things like immigrant uh, bias and, and so on. Um, we need to consider, um, you know, how individuals' environment and geography has a great impact upon their development. What we've found in terms of the UK and the education report is that geography plays a, a massive role, and that's influenced by, like, obviously poverty, um, you know, um, like uh, culture, and um, other environmental factors such as... Um, you know, uh, likelihood to have your father present or to um, have um, services available from which aren't over um, exceeded and so on. Um, over, what's the word I'm looking for? Over um, used, essentially. There's, there's just, uh, you know, capable of actually providing the service they need. So when we look at like a variation between outcomes of, you know, black kids and white kids, pointing it down to purely to, to, to mothers, uh, bases based on the race is just pure, way too simplistic. We can control the race and we still see a difference in terms of geographical location. Like, even if we were to accept what you said, the environment would still play a role and I don't accept what you said. Well, uh, let's examine what uh, perspective philosophy has answered. He says, if anything, you made a case for nurture or the environment. 
And then he demands control for income, cultural background. And then he's largely fighting a strawman where he claims that I'm attributing all of this to black mother or white mother. Uh, that was just one study, and it's really a small effect on IQ. I still attribute most of the effect on IQ based on twin studies. Most of the IQ is determined by the genes of the child. But I'm saying there is an impact, and we're talking about one to six IQ points in the various studies I've mentioned, either based on whether the mother is white in the prenatal environment study or whether the uh, adoptive family is white in the transracial adoption study. So I don't need to control for income because white parents are making more income. And the reason they're making more income is that they have the genes to do it. That that's, that's that's demonstrated absurd. in twin studies. That's absurd. That look, like let's be honest. If we look like towards even disparities in white communities, you can have two individuals who are placed in two separate uh, geographical environments who are likely to earn differently based upon the culture from which they're raised. Look, look. If I'm if I was taught to uh, you know uh, go into STEM and uh, become an engineer, I'm going to have a greater overall. Uh, likelihood of having um, a higher uh, a higher wage, but I will also have a greater overall likelihood of not being self-employed. Now, if I was on the other hand being you know raised by individuals who recommend self-employment, now why are they recommending self-employment? And you can point it out. Oh well, it's because of genes. Like in terms of the maternal environment, it's all dependent upon genes. But why should I accept that the maternal environment is purely dependent upon genes? There is no reason to believe this. You've only stated that there is a discrepancy between uh, one family and another, and that has led to a difference. And that, that difference can be accounted from environmental causes. But even in terms of the cultural expression of education, that does not necessarily boil down to a biological cause. You can't just say that an individual being white is the reason that, or, or, or uh, is the reason that they are more likely to be wealthy. Because we have plenty of poor white people, or an individual being well-educated is, is tied to that, um, that, that underlying genes as well, not necessarily, they could have been born into an environment which has had a, you know, uh, overall greater amount of um, resource distribution and had a, an economic uh, boom. Like it, uh, they may have a small population and a great amount of resources that are born into Sweden or Scandinavia. Like, <laughs> it's just not so simple. Like, this is, this is essentially um, bad reductionism. Uh, okay, I want to complete on this second point because I really want us to complete the third point, which will be quick, and then we can jump, I guess, Amy, on the questions of the chat, the super chats. Uh, but I will say in conclusion to perspective philosophy, you're attacking a strawman. I didn't say the race of the white woman causes the increase in IQ. But I, what I argue is that there are different populations. There's a European decent population in America. There's a black population descending from Africa and that they have different delivery of parental services to their children. And by the way, I include income in this. The parents who have higher income are really building a better nest for their children. If I saw a bird build a better nest for its eggs, I wouldn't say, oh, it's the environment because the, the nest is made of straw. No, ultimately, it boils down to the parental capacity and delivering something good for the children. You decide to call it environment, but you, you, negate, the, you negate the fact that it is ultimately an environment made of other genes, the genes of the parent that will be partly in the child. So moving to the third point. Well, I mean, like, look, before we move to the third point, let's just, okay. let's just recognize that even the economic disparities being pointed, uh, pushed down to 
um, genetic differences is not even it doesn't explain anything. If I was to say that, the, look, the, the reason that an individual is from a lower economic background in the United States is because they are African-American. Um, that's not necessarily true. And, you know, not only do we see that, you know, see individuals who manage to escape poverty, you know, don't necessarily, uh, you know, African-Americans can't escape poverty and, and change to different environments and have different academic outcomes and so on. But also the recognition that the poverty that they're in can be regulated by other external causes than their own gene expression. You could be born a genius in the ghetto and get shot at the age of 15. It doesn't matter. It, it like the like the <laughs> like the the crime rates, the poverty rates, all of this are not necessarily absolutely independent of genes. It was their unfortunate like um their unfortunate uh, circumstance to come from a descendant who was enslaved by, for example, uh, the white population of that era. But that enslavement has had historic has had a historical result, which led to redlining, which led to um, systemic racism and institutional abuse, uh, and which has caused a, a great amount of poverty. Just as you know, individuals born of different classes, which are of the same race, for example, white people in the United States, have faced similar. Um, issues you you know you could be born even from a different religion or or a different um, nationality you know Irish um, descendants in the United States um, Italian descendants in the United States and they all seem to suffer when it comes to low income environments poverty has a massive overall impact and that poverty is not simply dependent upon the genetic expression of the individual but also upon their engagement with other individuals and if you just say oh well other individuals are made of genes well, that doesn't give me greater explanatory power than a cultural, than a psychological cultural framework, which is the whole point of why we're engaging in this discussion. Well, on the question of whether wealth or living in the ghetto is influenced by genes, I will refer to people to dissecting polygenic signals from genome-wide association studies on human behavior by Abdel Abdelawi and Karen Verwage. Uh, they show that among the things that are predicted by genes in twin studies, so th they are linked to genes in a causal fashion, uh, there is adult IQ and income. Income is almost 80% plus determined by genes as assessed by twin studies, which are the highest standard. Uh, so twin forget it. The twin studies are not the highest standard. There is a definite, like, from what I looked into, I looked into some of the twin studies that you shared. Un unfortunately, some of them um, weren't available. Like, they were just the abstracts were available. Um, but from the twin studies that I could get my hands on, um, they didn't seem necessarily to, to be that rigorous in terms of controlling for environmental differences. Um, the idea was to show that outcome was uh, based upon like genetic expression rather than environmental differences. But the, there didn't seem to be enough data to support that claim. Uh, perspective philosophy is saying it's not the highest standard. I will be waiting for him to find a study that is better at assessing the minimal contribution of genes than a twin study. Uh, that being said, we, we, which contradict this. So we have like, so for example, like even in terms of genetic expression, we have genetic, we have epigenetic studies, right? So we have studies which show that gene expression is modulated by the environment. And so, uh, like totally, um, so if I was to take, for example, one of the twins, right, which could be, you know, they could be identical twins, and you could take one of their, um, uh, 
you could take one of the embryos and deposit it in a surrogate mother. Let's just, uh, you know, hypothesize that we deposit it in a surrogate mother and kept the other in uh, their biological mother. We will see a difference in outcome, physical outcome, just on the modulation of that environmental difference because of the because of the the mother from which was carrying them we've seen differences in the food consumed to uh, activating and deactivating certain genes in terms of genetic expression like the the base genes that you have aren't necessarily the genes that you will continue to to have we will see them deactivated and some activated and the the genes in which you pass on are also not those same genes because you can pass on some activated genes and some deactivated genes it's a level of information that is deposited above the dna so even in terms of um even in terms of this uh even in terms of twin studies even if we were to uh, keep a, a control um, the genetic material of one individual and the genetic material of another individual, the reality is, is that the information which is uh, uh, deposited on the genome will be vastly different just based on epigenetic studies. Perspective philosophy is simply wrong here and ridiculously wrong thinking that uh, you lose your genes because of epigenetics, you don't. Epigenetics is just a marker. And by the way, what's handling the, the on or off of this marker? It's another gene. And so yeah. ultimately, when you yeah, have epigenetics, you just have plasticity. I don't deny plasticity. By the way, there are snails. You can give them an electrocute. You can electrocute them on some place of the aquarium and they will never go back to that place of the aquarium. Is it because the environment is having an effect on the snail that suddenly the snail is not a product of genetics? No, it is a product of genetics. It is a product of genes that make the brain able to learn. And epigenetics is a form of learning, but it's still genetics. All right, moving to the academics who argue against parental contribution. And here we touch the heart of the conspiracy, the end of it, the goal. Why, why are academics so interested in transracial adoption studies and these twin studies? Why are they interested in ultimately dissociating the biological parent from the success of their children? And I will take two examples of it. And one of them comes from the nature side. So they argue for genes. One of them comes from the nurture side. They argue for environment, but both agree on a single thing. Parents don't matter. And we, sh in fact, in the case of Elizabeth Bartlett, she believes we should kidnap children from poor white parents to give them to richer black parents. Uh, so let's start with Judith Rich Harris. In her book, The Nurture Assumption, so Judith Rich Harris is someone who is a psychologist educated at Harvard. And in her book, The Nurture Assumptions, she goes against the myth, what she calls the myth, that parents matter. She says the experts are wrong. Parental nurturing is not what determines how a child turns out. Children are not socialized by their parents. The nurture assumption is a myth, and most of the research used to support it is worthless. So she goes for the genetic side of explanation, but of course not the genetics of the parents. In that way, she is on the nature side of the debate, and yet she denies the contribution of parents. On what basis does she do it? She do does it on the exact same basis as perspective philosophy did throughout this debate, which is to call everything the environment, when in fact the environment is a nest produced by the parents and the parents are produced by the genes that are carried in the parent. 
And so even uh, Judith Rich Harris must recognize that uh, at the end, she does say, yet even in her, she says, I have to acknowledge two things that, that my case does not undermine. One, parents who do a good job of managing their lives and who get along well with others tend to have children who are like that too. And she also acknowledges that the treatment of children with affection and respect tend to do better in terms of managing their lives and their future personal relationships. So she fails at dismissing the contribution of parents and ultimately she hides the contribution of parents under the term environment. But you know, and I know that ultimately the environment that a child lives in is produced by his parents, is a product of the parents' genes. The other intellectual I want to drag attention to is on the side of nurture. She believes so much in the environment that she believes we should uh, essentially pick children uh, randomly at birth and get some white children into black families uh, and base it on the income, base it on whether it would be better for the child. She wants to deprive children of the natural, their natural ecological position within their family, their biological family. She was the organizer of the anti-homeschool conference of Harvard, which ended up getting canceled because her beliefs are so outrageous. She states that the focus will be on problems of educational deprivation and child maltreatment that too often occurs under the guise of homeschooling in a legal environment of minimal or no oversight. In other words, she's going after homeschooling, which is a white practice, as I've established earlier in the debate. She goes against homeschooling and wants to characterize homeschooling as a form of abuse of the children. Or what? Of course, to deliver the child under the control of the state. In Guiding Principles for Picking Parents, she states, My own view is that biology is clearly not all important, as the new geneticists claim, nor is it as important as traditional family law makes it. Children fare just as well when raised by adoptive parents as when raised by birth parents, so long as they are placed in infancy. Modern development presents us with many new and complex issues in defining parentage. It is important to focus on the basics. The key issues are social, political, and legal, not scientific. We can do what we will. DNA tests cannot force us to decide that one person is a real parent and another is not. It's clear from our statements that the agenda here is to deny the biological importance of parenting, and she's willing to even deny that DNA tests matter in determining who should be the parent. In our text, Cultural Stereotypes Can and Do Die, it's time to move on with transracial adoption. She says, race matching is the direct descendant of white supremacy and of black separatism. For the state to promote the formation of same-race families and discourage the formation of interracial families as it does when it endorses race matching is wrong in my view for the same reasons that barriers to interracial marriages were wrong. In other words, our program, our agenda, is to make sure that white children will be adopted by black families. Well, that, that's, that's not what you just said. I mean, like, if you're going to mischaracterize someone else, I mean, come on, like, what you just said was that we shouldn't put blocks on transracial adoption. She didn't say we should promote transracial adoption. She didn't say that we ought to put um, people with, uh, like, white kids with black families. She just said that we shouldn't put 
legal blocks or um, cultural conventional blocks from transracial adoption. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. God forbid. Perspective philosophy. When you call the opposite of your position white supremacy, are, would you are, agree that this is some kind of argument that she's promoting the alternative? Well, here? I mean, the, I mean, when you call an argument to block uh, black people from adopting white children based on their race, I would say that was um, a form of racial racial prejudice. I could understand why that individual would call that. Um, let's say white supremacist, especially if it's not going both ways. If you, oh, unless it's even, oh, you know, we won't let white people, you know, adopt black people for the same. Reason. It's going both ways. That's what she calls race matching. So the policy in adoption is to favor same race families, and she's going after this. So it goes both ways. They are also denying the likelihood of a black person being adopted in a white family. Uh, so I what I will say on this is I think we've gone okay, full okay. circle. At this point, you're standing with Elizabeth Bartolet I'm not for transracial. I'm, I'm, mate, I, look, one, I'm not a physical reductionist, so I'm certainly not arguing for someone who's arguing for uh, genetics over, over nurture. I'm just, and I'm certainly not arguing that everything is environment because that was a total mischaracterization of my position. I'm just saying that you're mischaracterizing one of the scientists that you're quoting um, as a no. left-wing thinker, which you are. <laughs> She, uh, uh, the title of our text is It's Time to Move On with Transracial Adoption. So I'm not mischaracterizing this, and she calls it the descendant of white supremacy. To be considering that a white children needs uh, parents that are separation genetically close to him. There's a separation what? between promotion, though. And, um, and like she's not saying that we ought to put to mix race, mixed racial adoption. She's not saying that we ought to put black kids with white parents and white kids with black parents she's saying that we shouldn't put any blocks she is she's saying it's time to move on with transracial adoption anyway i think that people people will be able to understand from her language that she's really not positive about matching people by race whereas it's important it matters that people just because you don't match people by race doesn't mean that you are go. it's in fact the opposite it's not mean that you're going to like okay now it's a pick and mix it's it's more of like um there are other factors in terms of adoption which we might use as metrics to whether one parent adopts a, a child then she's the not race. she's not merely saying there are other factors she wants to remove race as a factor that is grave that is grave because it denies the importance of the link between the parents genes and the child's genes it matters that children are in line with an harmonic set of genes that have evolved to be parenting that kind of child. We don't know what will be the result of the, the transracial adoption experiments that she's pushing for, but it's not looking good when you look at the early cases of transracial adoption because it seems that, yes, kids who are adopted by white families fare better, and that's because European parents are special. They deliver better services in America. Anyways, well, that is it for my I, case. I don't know if you have a concluding word. You never managed to argue whether it would be um, modulated by other environmental factors, such as uh, you know um, educational um, infrastructure for poverty rates, for crime rates. Uh, I mean, even employment opportunities. Uh, nothing. It doesn't like, matter to me because yes, all these is, things. So. All these things are influenced. That's the only reason. Who, who decide, let me know a perspective philosophy. Who decides to go live in the ghetto? 
Well, that's well, who. What do you mean? Who decides to go live in the ghetto? It's you're born. What is the what is the what is the set of factors that lead a mother to go to choose to li live in the ghetto? Um, it could be there could be many factors. I mean, hell, there are white people in the ghetto as well, you know. Okay, what what leads a white person to go live in the ghetto? Poverty. Poverty. What causes poverty? There are numerous causes. Um, you can have. Do you do you acknowledge that one of the causes is genetic? Um, well, you can have genetic dispositions, which are like so, for example, rates of disability and stuff like that. All right, we're done. That was my case today. What? <laughs> okay, some people are disabled, therefore, um, poverty is entirely uh, the result of genetics. What? what? Not entirely. Apparently, uh, just a fraction of a percentage, but above 50% of the variance in humanity. Above 50% of poverty, you think, is uh, determined by race. Yet, by genetics, you know, the fastest, not race. The fastest, genetics. Or, okay, well, yeah, but you related that to race like moments ago, which is why you started talking about transracial adoption, as if that had some significance. Um, so unless you're trying to say that there, there, you know, there isn't a genetic difference. Um, like, anyway... Like, I mean, this doesn't even take into consideration, for example, economic disparities, which are becoming undermined now because of changing global positions. For example, like the tiger economy in South Korea. So they were poor for a long time. Oh, but now we've got a massive economic boom. Or what about um, Japan? You know, and when we look at like Asian countries in general, like, are they genetically superior? Uh, and like, the, no, like the reality of the situation is there is a cultural difference, which is promoting uh, their families to increase educational rates, sometimes to the detriment of the welfare of those individuals. For example, in Japan, the culture may increase likelihood of economic prosperity, but it also increases suicide rates, which is not um, ideal for those individuals who are living within those societies, which is, brings me back to the fact that you've never actually defined success. You never managed to define success. You didn't say what success meant in this scenario. Is it simply material outcome? Is it happiness reports? What, what, what moral metric are we using? Uh, depending on what we talk about. When I talk about these studies, success is often measured in terms of wealth, income, IQ, educational attainments. If you talk to me about a human being, how do I see success? And ultimately, you're talking about Asian uh, civilization. That's where, to me, uh, there's a big difference between Asian civilization and European civilization. It is that Europeans have innovated in the last, in the last 200 years. Europeans have invented stuff and Asians have copied it. But that's not necessarily the case. Actually, if you look at uh, Europeans didn't invent a lot of the things that they depended upon for those innovations. For example, mathematics. We can look towards the innovations of mathematics to um, like the to India and Persia. I mean, most of our mathematicians uh, during the uh, just prior to the Industrial Revolution were relying upon works that were translated from Iranian, um, from Persian to to English. Uh, like the, the reality of the situation is, is that many of the cultural innovations that our society would claim would claim uh, haven't even originated uh, or at least the, the the first principles from which they've developed upon haven't originated from even this quote unquote genetic environment so does that mean that our genes have you know produce uh, that uh, uh, like you know uh, that we can attribute this to Iranian genes or to um you know Hin Hindi genes or, or what what are we uh, like um like indian genes what are, what are we attributing this to um well and that's blurring that? so, 
But yeah, I just want you go guys to. to go. Well, uh, I want you guys to finish your line of discord, uh, discourse, and then when both you are ready, we'll move on to questions. I'm ready to move on to questions. Uh, essentially, perspective philosophy is making a case for first principles coming from Iran. Okay, so the Europeans had all the genes needed to develop calculus, but somehow we were not able to develop the zero as a number. Whoa, very impressive case here, PP. Let's go to Q&A. It was just, it was more of an observation that the mathematical models that we use today and the way that we taught mathematics to our academics were actually derived from, um, from Persia. So it's, it's not even to say that we could not have developed them, but that in terms of how we have developed socio-politically, it's not dependent upon purely genetic expression, but our engagement with one another and environmental factors, which is what the nature versus nurture debate is about. Like your attempts to boil it down to something like genetics, yet claiming that, you know, environment in terms of education makes a massive difference, like homeschooling, is evidence against your position, but because you're trying to conflate nature and nurture, which is only really meant to, in this case, uh, separate internal and external causes as one fundamentally genetic mildrew, you're missing the whole point of what the debate's actually about. The debate's about explanatory power. Is one characteristic of uh, human behavior... Um, oh god, I think the audio's totally messed up. Um, I can still hear So it. I'm gonna have... Um, yeah, I think it's like on my side. Um, like on me, on me stream. That's so, okay. Uh, oh, do you want to finish your statement? Uh, yeah, essentially, um, essentially, like just pointing it out to purely nature versus nurture, um, saying that it's all a, that it's a false dichotomy and everything's genetic, misses the point of why we've split into different epistemic fields in the first place. It's to give us better explanatory power, even if we accept the physicalist model, for the same reason that we don't characterize biology as physics, for the same reason we don't characterize biology as exper uh, you know, um, as chemistry because it doesn't give the same amount of explanatory power. We are better separating, even under a physicalist framework, into different fields, psychology, anthropology, history, cultural studies. These have a profound importance. The separation and of field will be the ultimate deceiver and the ultimate confounder. Let's, uh, let's acknowledge that human psychology is a product of nature. I'm ready for the Q&A. And all right, with that, we are going to move into the Q&A. If you have a question for either of the interlocutors or both, feel free to send them in chat to Mr. P or tag me at Amy Newman. Super chats do get priority in being read first. And with that, I'll flamo for $2.00. I agree with Papa JF. Nurture is part of nature. I guess that's right. for you perspective, because he's agreeing. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I was just trying to fix my uh oh, no, you're good. like uh my audio. Um yeah, I'm hoping that it's I'm hoping that it's a bit better now, but I, I can't be sure. I know um, that feel. Um so yeah, sorry, uh Go on then. Uh, so we'll come back to that. Uh, Nugget Man for $2 says, Hannah, uh, how did I insult anyone? Well, then she can answer. Uh, Arcadia Outpost for $10. I don't know why. 10 0. Social sciences. Social science 
academia is activism. Whose purpose is it to smokescreen the failures of multiracial societies and act as the justification for shaming people who point those failures out? I think that's absolutely, like, just to, if I may comment on that, I think that's absolutely appalling. Um, I mean, a lot of the multiracial societies that you're pointing towards are largely successful. I mean, like, like look at, uh, for example, the United Kingdom, um, you know, in, in terms of the British Empire. I mean, like, the empire itself was multiracial. And not only that, in terms of the success rate of, of Britain, it hasn't been modulated by the by uh, the... Uh, any increase or decrease in immigration. In many cases, we've economically promoted immigration for the economic prosperity of our society. That's why the Windrush generation and the Caribbean immigrants came over here in the first place. Uh, like the idea of it being multiculturalism leading to worse uh, like economic outcomes or worse uh, um, social outcomes is is ludicrous. Uh, cultures offer um, a variety of different benefits to um, the economic prosperity and ideological prosperity as well. You know, and that's why we have internal and external critique in terms of norms and conventions. For $5 from Oflamo, race is a label created by the state to control populations. Hispanics were white before 1970. Spain is in Europe, so people from Spain are European. The state at some point used the word words related to races, but races, the, the concept of race pre-existed any use of the state of it. it. It's just the familiar recognition that the people we see around us are physically distinct enough that we can place them in categories and we can develop expectations from these placements. I mean, we do seem to think that... Um... We do seem to think that there's uh, only like about three percent genetic difference between all of humanity, right? Like there's not a massive genetic difference, and in terms of most of that difference is aesthetic, um, linked to like so for example like whether white people were supposed to be bred with uh, Neanderthals, um, you know, um, you know, uh, Indo-Asian people bred with another form of Homo erectus, and um, you know, uh, black people uh, who are based in Africa didn't breed with. Uh, anyone but other homo sapiens from what we're aware and we may even think that there is another um humanoid that we we may have bred with i think in india but i'm not sure um like in terms of like in terms of outcomes of like iq it in terms of outcomes in in um like prosperity uh, prosperity if if you take for example um people in india they'll have a lower economic um outcome of, than people in the uk but if you take someone from India and you put them in the UK, they'll have a higher economic outcome than someone from the UK. Well, uh, the, the reason for this is that they're getting selected through immigration. So you're not picking people at random. If you were to pick people at random without making them go through form tests, uh, they, they wouldn't fare better than the average UK. As far as uh, fucking with the Neanderthal, yes, my ancestors had sex with the Neanderthal. And I'm proud of it. I would do it again. And moving along, Bubblegum Gun for $2. Which came first, nature or nurture? Rib Gwen. So nature, nurture first. Well, uh, as I say, it's a false dichotomy. So nature was always there and period. That's it. Um, 
the nature the nurture debate is really just a way of trying to give greater explanatory power to certain characteristics which impact the development the social development of an individual it's not which came first they're both essentially um supposed to happen to the individual at the same time but in terms of epistemologically uh the nature versus nurture debate isn't the result and, and even biology is the result of prior epistemic causes like um which is cultural and um uh, which is cultural in origin like the acceptance and denial of certain uh, epistemological norms um i'm not a physical reductionist so i don't even think that this can really be boiled down to brain states the reasons and the choices that our ancestors have made and the choices that we made are distinct from the genetics that produce our brains um i, I even think that this understanding of brains being um the only way to explain our behavior is to be entirely honest, they've flawed massively, which is why neuroscience hasn't really managed to make so much headway. And getting your questions in right now, feel free, guys, to continue tagging me at Amy Newman or Mr. P. We'll both get your questions, and Super Chats are being read first. $5 from Parahesia. If JF is correct life outcome correlations between an adopted sibling and unadopted will not equal correlation between both unadopted is this true? that's a that's an interesting experiment i've never seen it because usually when there's an event that justifies an adoption it justifies the adoption of the two sibling it's very rare that you'll have separation of siblings that way but I'd be interested in uh, in hearing about the study that did that. I never heard about one. Moving right along, another five dollars from Parahesia. PP, I think there is a misunderstanding. Can you explain the concept of heritability and how it is measured using twin studies? When we talk about like. Um... I, I actually read like a couple of the um, articles that GF sent, which was the first, my first ever engagement in twin studies. I'd like to point out I'm a philosopher, not a scientist. And um, from what I gained from the articles, in terms of heritability, were, um, you know, actually, once I pull up one of the, the, the articles that was against this. So, wait a minute. Uh, I just closed it to try and, to try and boost my video. Uh, buffering. So um, there's an article um, called Beyond Heritability, um, which um, essentially is um, argues that although human behavioral traits, uh, the heritability of human behavioral traits are inheritable, um, there are um, other factors in behavioral science which are um, which are um, which are outlined because of behavioral because of twin studies. We can see that um, there are causal effects which are environmental in origin, primarily for the fact that certain behaviors and uh, are inherited, uh, while certain behaviors are modulated by um, environmental um, uh, transactions. Mm -hmm. And all right, we're going to be moving on to some regular viewer questions. So if you have a thought bubble, 
now is your chance to get the opinion of either of our two interlocutors. Weibo Johnson says, please ask JF if he likes eugenics or if his beliefs lead to eugenics. No, I like natural selection. And in fact, I oppose to eugenics because I think that people are too stupid to make the decision of what's a good gene. I believe that the best arbiter of what's a good gene is nature, the confrontation between ourselves with nature and with the challenges that it brings. It's funny that you say that because um, obviously, like if you were to propose that nature, you know, like if you were to propose that everything's genetic and that the nature-nurture dichotomy is not necessarily correct, you could recognize that an individual's knowledge of genetics may lead them to a greater overall understanding. It's nature understanding itself, right? Because everything's nature. So nature's understanding itself and it's understanding how to do things in a different and better way overall in terms of outcome, which is essentially what many of the left-wing academics um, who you think uh, are arguing for um, purely nature or arguing for a purely nature versus nurture discussion, many of them actually accept what you're promoting, uh, mainly like Lenin and Trotsky, we're arguing for the genetic modification of individuals to try and create a better society. Um, yeah, the problem is people well, are too it, mundane in their preference. You give them knowledge and they will start caring about blonde hairs, blue eyes and intelligence, and they will drive us away from what nature really needs. But this is the thing, like one, like when we talk about notions of success, this is why we had that debate, uh, Brian, because when we talk about something like success or, you know, moral terms, uh, you say you're a moral nihilist, but then when you use terms like good um, and so on, they always have moral implications. Like, you know, what, whether an individual, so if an individual was to suffer more, let's say greater insensitivity to pain might have a greater overall increased uh, level of uh, gene transmissibility or uh, survival rates or whatever. That doesn't necessarily mean that we ought to want to feel more pain. Um, this, they, they, that's, that's the issue. It's like the naturalistic fallacy. Um, well, because this in the last debate, moral nihilism does not entail me to not have moral preferences. I can like certain things about the world. I can want the world to be one way while being a moral nihilist. No, that's exactly what it is. Like a moral nihilist would say that there are no, there is nothing. You can't say a moral preference. Um, so a moral nihilist can't eat ice cream. We've been through this. A moral nihilist can moral like us. Preferences but can't have moral pre like, that, that, like, like, the word moral doesn't exist anymore that's the whole nihilist part man <laughs> like, like, they can have preferences okay. about anything including what you would call moral and so that's going to be the last word because it was jf's question and so we are moving on another five dollar super chat pp i don't think that answered my question uh, and this is coming from parahesia again what is the definition of heritability and how is it measured uh, I don't think I could give you the definition to be entirely honest with you. Um, I'm, I'm just not to be entirely honest with you as um, what's the right word? Well read on the topic. I'm not a geneticist. I'm not a biologist. Uh, I'd probably direct that question to Jeff. I think I imagine he's. Yeah. To help PP here, irritability is simply defined as the frequency of repetition between the last generation phenotypic feature and the next generation phenotypic features. And so you would say that something is irritable if 100, let's say it's 100% irritable if 100% of the parents who, who had blue eyes 
led to 100% of children who had blue eyes. And as you go down the continuum, you have less and less irritability. Now, irritability, as is understood in twin studies, is often associated with specific sub-definitions of irritability. And when we, when we do the difference between monozygotic twin and dizygotic twin, uh, ultimately it boils down to a form of irritability, which you can attribute specifically to the genetic difference. So in that case, uh, they have words for it, but I would call it simply genetic irritability as opposed to environmental irritability. And you have other, other forms of things that are, that are, that can lead to an irritability appearance, but are, that are not really genetic irritability. You can have cultural, uh, you can have cultural transmission, which ultimately is handled by genes, but you can also have random and probabilistic effects of genes that can be counted in a form of irritability. Uh, there are three or four categories of sub-definitions when you enter twin studies. I know that um, in terms of the epigenetic studies that I was mentioning before, the heritability of obesity was modulated by, uh, to a greater degree by environment than it was um, by genetic um, causes. Um, so my understanding of heritability was essentially like obviously the rate at which something was passed down. Um, I obviously still probably couldn't give you like a bang on dictionary, like a bang on definition of it. Um, but yeah, like in terms of, I think what we've been discussing here, um, JF would like to say that the heritability of, um, so for example, success and outcome is dependent upon uh, genetic factors and, I, and, uh, and genetic factors alone. And even the environmental factors can be attributed to prior genetic factors. Whilst I would say that the debate itself is being uh, situated in such a way as to point the difference between internal and external factors in terms of how we, how we, uh, how our behaviors are structured and developed. So whether we inherit a certain behavior or not is not dependent upon simply internal genetic um, material, genetic makeup, but rather cultural, political, and environmental factors as well. And it was his question, so that's the last word. Question from Peach Pie Lord. Where is the apple falling on head gene? Maybe the head gene? Where is the apple falling on the head gene? Quite simple. There are trees that their apples fall. There are trees that their apples don't fall. And those trees that survive are those that let the apple fall just at the right moment when it's ripe and when it's ready to get transported by a human so that it can seed an apple tree elsewhere. The apple falls on Isaac Newton's head ultimately because it wanted Isaac Newton to spread its sperm elsewhere. That's what's happening. Isaac Newton was the uterus of this apple. And in thinking about gravity, he has acted against the interest of the tree. What the tree really wanted is to be carried by Isaac Newton to some distant place where its children could be born. Question or more comment from Commander Cardi. Uh, your concerns seem to be more related to how the leftists are going to misuse the dichotomy for their ideology than the epistemological choice made to increase exponentiary power. Absolutely. I'm extremely worried about the use of this fallacy because if I was to complain against every fallacy in psychology, I would, I would spend my day here and we wouldn't be done. Uh, this fallacy is particularly vicious because it leads to the conclusion, oh, as Elizabeth Bartlett concluded, I need to take children away from 
poor white parents and give them to rich black parents because it's going to be so much better. She doesn't get it. She doesn't get it or, or she gets it and she she wants to to push for a subversive uh, push on Western civilization. But in any case, yes, it's dramatic. As far as the epistemologic aspect, I do care about it. I'm a scientist, so I care about how these false dichotomies lead us to false theories. But it's so much less graver than the than the interventions of the states that are being pushed that it's al almost a secondary matter. From Pancake of Destiny, why Republic of South Africa was growing f fast when governed by white people and it started to fall apart after natives took it over, this proves genes matter. I think it's for PP this one. Um, right, sorry, I had to restart my audio there. No, um, do I may reread it? It's why um, Republic no, of no, South I, Africa. I heard you. It's just more of the fact my stream wouldn't have heard it. If that's okay. <sighs> oh yeah, I'll say it again for you. Why Republic of South Africa was growing fast when governed by white people, and it started to fall apart after natives took it over. This proves genes matter. Well, no, it doesn't. I mean, like, if you look at, like, for example, the effects of the, like, the cultural effects of apartheid on education and the capacity to run something like a farm, for example, that holds massive importance. That's genetically, uh, that's not uh, determined by genetics. I mean, you've got plenty of black farmers around the world. You've got plenty of farmers that are of different races around the world that didn't suffer apartheid and so know how to run a farm. Um, the the uh, the cultural um, significance of South Africa is what makes this um, um, analogy important. Uh, you know, like we, we do see black farmers, we do see Asian farmers, we do see people of different races, you know, uh, managing to essentially uh, run businesses and structure economies, but we do not see usually people who've come from great racial disparity and um, uh, great racial disparity and poverty uh, being usually competent uh, competent enough to, um, you know, end the um, economic disparity uh, that they face. In the words of Kant, um, the freedom is the prerequisite for the maturity for freedom. White people were given freedoms that black people were not given, and so have developed the means necessary to use that freedom to a greater uh, advantage in that scenario. And if you want an example of where white dominance isn't present like it is in South Africa, just watch Ethiopia. You'll see how these societies converge when there's no white supremacist uh, controlling their politics because well, Ethiopia was never invaded. Ethiopia, in terms of uh, like trying to say that, like in terms of the global economic agenda that Ethiopia hasn't faced, um, massive, like catastrophic um, economic issues. It would just like totally undermine that as an example as well. Like it, like maybe if you were to use something like, um, like you know, for example, like uh, ra like you know, like the like if you had like something like I don't know, uh, rates of uh, like farmers in the United States, uh, in Britain, in European countries where they've had uh, equal education systems, where they've had um, you know, um, they haven't had. Uh, systemic racism for the same degree they've had um you know l lower rates of poverty criminality um and you know haven't been you know um economically disadvantaged for hundreds of years that may you know be a better comparison 
and again you know there are other races and there are other places that are, have um not only black people but obviously asian people that farm just as well from donald anderson question to jf you said your moral nihilists can have moral preferences you said moral nihilists can have moral preferences if so What's the difference between moral nihilism and moral non-cognitivism? Um, I don't know specifically how, to, how it is defined non-cognitivism. I think it's a more general term that encompasses broader stuff, but I'm not sure I would have to check it. But what a moral nihilist is, is simply someone who denies that moral statements are subject to true verification. So the, the statement, for example, it is bad to murder, is not a statement that is true or false. It is only true or false in the head of someone. And so it is in relation to what people want and desire from the world. I can say that I don't like murder, and therefore to me that murder is wrong is true, but it's not a verifiably true statement. Um, just to point out, that would be moral, that would be subjectivism or non, that, like, that's kind of what they're arguing. So like, um, just to, like, obviously you, you came in with the, Biology, biology definitions and stuff this is sort of like a philosophically specific question the in terms of nihilism nihilism is a rejection of um so for example an individual their preferences like if we were to accept like say the nietzschean position he's not a nihilist but he's arguing against the threat of nihilism the individual's preferences can be um essentially culturally imbued by a certain let's say religion or or um um, you know, environmental factors which have given them their preferences. So even when they think they're acting in their own interests, they're acting in the interests of someone else. And so they aren't right or wrong even against their own uh, internal states. The point is, is that there is no such thing as right or wrong, that it's all a power play, that there is no right or wrong at all. That's nihilism. In terms of um, subjectivism, this would be um, the truth aptness uh, of a statement is based on the attitudes of an individual. Um, or in a non-cognitivism that an individual's that the that the um, they are not truth apt and in simply expressions of an individual's preferences. Now that would be uh, the, sep the they, they would be the separations that I think you need to deal with, which is I think something that you do need to tackle with. But you know, that's just. I remind my statement, I am a moral nihilist because I de I deny the truth aptness of moral statements. And that's the final word. Mr. P, why are genetic studies avoided by most scientists these days? Or from Mr. P, from Pat Riley, why are genetic studies avoided by most scientists these days? Uh, well, it's because there's a general uh, oppression of people who come with genetic and irritability-based explanations of human behavior because there's the same thing that pushed CRT onto our schools and onto our elementary schools at this point is the, the social pressure from leftists who are taking over our institutions and they don't want to hear that the world is unequal because they fear that they won't be able to fix it. And what leftists like to do is to technocratize, to socially engineer the world. And they are very alarmed at the possibility that they may not be able to if it's genetic differences that cause the, the differences in behavior. Um, in the words of Peter Singer, equality is not natural, it's, uh, it's artificial. 
like when we talk about equality, we're not talking about equity and we're not talking about um, differences in outcome. We're talking about how can we consider individuals' interests equally. Um, that's that's not that's that's not something that um, is um, natural in origin. Nobody necessarily argues it is. Um, like uh, also, leftists aren't against genetic um, studies. I mean, many leftists, like I was talking about, like uh, far left um, in terms of like. Trotsky and Lenin, they were big into genetics in terms of, and, and, and if you look at, um, for example, I don't know if you'd consider the Communist Party in China to be left, but they, uh, they do a lot of genetic research, man. Um, like, it's not, it's not like they're against genetics at all. Um, like, the, the, um, the reality of the situation is, is that the ideology is not incompatible with genetics. In fact, most leftists claim to be materialists. They would like to put everything down to material contentions that exist between class-based structures rather than, let's say, ideological contentions, which I would argue for. So in terms of like physicalism, it wouldn't be incompatible at all. Many leftists are actually pro-genetic uh, research. The difference is, is that we don't necessarily, many, many leftists or, or many academics don't necessarily put um, absolute credence upon JF's position upon genetics, which is that it gives greater explanatory power than, let's say, philosophy, psychology, uh, anthropology, history, and et cetera combined, and that there are other genetic studies that may need to be done, which show other um, transactions with genetics and the environment, like epigenetics and so on. So when we look at how academics is unfolding, it's, it's not based on um, a simple left-right dichotomy. Um, academics unfolds based upon individuals' pursuit for truth. And okay, that can be influenced by the rationality in which they um, endeavor to, uh, in which they accept. But there are the many, um, not only liberals, uh, like, um, and, but also middle of the road, people who de uh, describe themselves as middle of the road. At one point, I think the United States had 46% of academics say that they were um, neither right nor left. So when we look at the disparity between like why people are not um, uh, you know, engaged in let's say more genetic studies or twin studies and why they go towards something maybe like epigenetic studies or why they would go towards something like um, philosophy or psychology and so on. It probably is more to do with their belief in the explanatory power rather than some sort of uh, political conspiracy. And question from Matt Plot. Are all bad things due to nurture? How convenient, PP. Uh, sorry, what? Uh, are all things due to nurture? Yes. So the last part was a comment, but the question is, are all bad things due to nurture? Um, no. I mean, like, uh, like for example, if uh, a volcano erupts, it's, it's like we would consider that a natural evil, quote-unquote. Um, you know, like the reality of the situation is like you could be born disabled. That could be a bad thing. How we approach something which is negative is what we actually engage in with ethics. It's how we ought to behave in terms of our behaviors. So, for example, um, there's a famous quote by Jean-Paul Sartre, which says the disabled man disables himself. He doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, they are inflicting their own disability upon themselves, but rather that how they approach their disability is what characterizes them as accepting the identity of someone being disabled. Um, there are famous speeches of people saying that they were told that they were inferior, like mentally uh, disabled, and have succeeded regardless. Um, people who've, uh, there are numerous success stories of people who've become um, world-class athletes or, um, you know, uh, physically capable, regardless of after having lost limbs and so on. How we approach, um, you know, um, what nature deals de uh, deals us or nurture deals with uh, deals us the environment uh, is primarily to do with our ethics. 
And I wouldn't necessarily say it's that human behavior is determinate from either external or internal causes because I believe in free will. So, you know, that's that's kind of it's kind of how I would answer that question. Question from Pat Riley. How do you explain the elevated levels of genius IQ and the high level of Nobel Prizes within the Jewish population worldwide as compared to population levels? Well, as far as uh, the Nobel Prize, I don't consider it as a measure of achievement in science. I consider it as a measure of social networking. So my conclusion would be that Jews are very good at social networking. Uh, as far as higher IQ, I believe that the observations are so-so. I don't think that overall on the global population of Jews that there is higher IQ. I think that what was uh, used to reach these conclusions were subsets. But if you consider people in Israel, if you consider the diaspora of Jews across the global population, you see IQ averages that, that range from 80 to uh, 100, uh, 110, depending on the subsets. So um, I, I wouldn't say that. I think you, you have false premises in your super chat. $5 from The Banterlope. Can PP please point out where the right-wingers are in academia? Um, well, actually, it's it, like it's numerous studies have actually showed that it's uh, more geographical than anything else. Um, at least I know one specific study in the United States uh, showed the discrepancy in terms of um, how many right people were right-wing had more to do with the location of the university than anything else. Most of the, I would say most of the academia is left-wing, but that's just because we're smarter. Um, <laughs> just being a bit spicy there, really. Uh, but I mean, there is an argument to be made there that the you know individuals who are more educated are more likely to come to the conclusion uh, in terms of uh, more ethical conclusions as well. Um, which is why academics are more likely to also be vegan. Um, it's just the way it is. And all right, that looks like it's the end of our question. So what I'd like to do now is just give a thank you to JF and Perspective Philosophy. JF, where can people find you and what are your final thoughts? I'm at JFG tonight, and I will be live at 7 p.m. Eastern Time every day. So come to see me for the regular show. And you can buy my book, The Revolutionary Phenotype, on Amazon. Thank you so much, JF. And then Perspective Philosophy, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you, and what are your final thoughts? Yeah, so I am Perspective Philosophy. I'm a PhD researcher in uh, philosophy, believe it or not. And I primarily focus on veganism, but I'm also left-wing and do numerous other things on my channel. So you can find me at uh, YouTube slash Perspective Philosophy. Uh, well, YouTube.com slash Perspective Philosophy. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you very much for having us on. And um, for final thoughts, uh, I would just say, yeah, like it's not a conspiracy for one. Uh, there's no reason to believe it's a conspiracy. And um, that in terms of explanatory power, we're better off having multiple fields rather than one field, which is overburdened. I want to thank both JF and Perspective Philosophy for joining us tonight on Modern Day Debate. We are a neutral platform. Welcome everybody from all walks of life. In fact, if you're looking for more juicy debates in the future, 
feel free to like and subscribe. And if you enjoyed what you heard tonight from either of our guests, their channel links are put in the description below. I'm Amy Newman with Modern Day Debate. We hope you all have an awesome night. Thank you very much, Amy. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.